being in the country, you really experience the seasons. I know sometimes in a city, you don't see the colours change. You don't see the grass get greener. You don't see the flowers bloom. Whereas here it's there every day. So that can be a great inspiration. So yeah, seasons have a big impact on what we do. This is the Deep in the Weeds podcast. I'm Anthony Huckstep. A yearning to explore and understand one's heritage can open up a whole new culinary and cultural world. For those that dig deeper, the wealth of techniques, recipes, methods, and uses of unique ingredients can change the way they cook too. How important is heritage for chefs building their career? Claire Falzon is the executive chef of Hentley Farm in the Barossa Valley, South Australia. Claire, how are you? Yeah, good, thank you. You, your career was sparked by your European heritage. Can, can you tell us uh, a bit about that and, and what food was like for you as a kid? Yeah, um, well, my dad was born in Malta and he came out here when he was a kid with his family. Um, so we, there was a big emphasis on food growing up, um, growing up on the Central Coast. Uh, eating rabbit stew for dinner wasn't really, really normal. Um, and then spending a lot of time around my grandmother, we, we ate a lot of foods that she cooked from back home. Did you do a lot of cooking with family at a young age? Uh, I did, more like observing. Um, both my parents were really avid cooks and they liked trying new things and cooking new things. Um, so I was always, always, they were always cooking new things and we were eating them and I'd hang out in the kitchen with them. Same with my grandmother. You know, I'd help just with like topping and tailing beans, things like that, while they did all the intricate things. <laughs> Rabbit is a, a real key protein for Maltese cuisine. Tell us, tell us the ways that your family uh, cooked it when you were young. Uh, well, my grandfather actually bred rabbits, so he had them in the in the backyard in Sydney. So you'd kind of go down and pick what you, which one you want for dinner. Um, and you know, rabbit stew, baked rabbit, fried rabbits, all the ways rabbit. There's another one that's. Um, Pan, rabbit, red wine, let it cook, that's it. <laughs> what, what lured you to a career in, in hospitality? Um, well, I guess growing up there was a big emphasis on the idea of good food and enjoying good food and the importance of eating good food. And also it was a big part of um, bringing people together. And then as I got a bit older, I started traveling and I noticed that this is, you know, food is the the common thing that all cultures in the world have and they come together over it. And I just wanted to be in a space where I could, I could do that for other people. Tell us about the first couple of years working in a commercial kitchen. Do you have any stories of, of that time and when you realized, yeah, the chefing is for you? Uh, well, I did my apprenticeship in like a like an RSL club on the on the Central Coast, so um, nothing too too high end. Lots of schnitzels and steaks, um, but it was probably when I went to London um, after I finished my apprenticeship that I went into Michelin star restaurants, and then that's where I saw, oh wow, this is like there's endless possibilities of what you can do with food, and just working around such highly skilled chefs and all that determination really, really showed me like, oh, wow, I can take this as far as I want to. Tell us about your time in London. What were the restaurants that you worked at and what were the real key moments for you? Uh, 
I started working as a third commie at the Amaranto in the Four Seasons on Park Lane. And that was really my first introduction to that sort of cooking scene. Um, and I was just around a lot of different cultures and a lot of different types of food and a lot of people teaching me a lot of new skills that I didn't have. And then I moved over to the Gordon Ramsay group. Uh, so I was in Mays and Head and Street Kitchen. I did a little bit of a stint in Petrus, and that's really where everything was really high standards, really focused. Gordon Ramsay's known the world over, um, but what's it like working in his restaurants? Is there is there any sort of techniques or dishes that you remember from that time that have stuck with you? Um, well, I worked in Mays, Petrus, a bit more fine dining. I um, worked in... Um, Head and Street Kitchen, which was a bit more casual. Um, I actually, the dish I do remember was um, because it was casual, there was a fried chicken dish. And um, I remember having this conversation with Gordon and he was like, oh, I love these chicken wings so much. I'm like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so <laughs> he's like, I could eat so many of them. And I'm like, oh, yeah, okay, cool. Um, we chef. And um you know, even though it's it's chicken wings, that kind of showed me that, you know, unless – even though you, you're in a more casual place, it's still got the same standards as, you know, the, the Michelin stars as well. What was he like to, to deal with uh, during your time in the Gordon Ramsay group? Um, for me, as a commie, Demi, it was all good. He would come through. He ate in the restaurants pretty regularly, showed his face. He was always – it didn't matter who you are. He was always like, oh, hey, like, how are you? How's the day going? He knew you by name. So for me, all good. But, um, you know, obviously, like I said, there's standards and you have to meet them. You spent some time in Amsterdam. How different was that compared to the kitchens in the UK? Uh, that was a lot different, um, especially considering as I went from, you know, companies from Four Seasons, Gordon Ramsay, to a little family-owned restaurant, maybe like 30 seats in Amsterdam. Wow. Yeah, so that was that was a lot different. But I learned a lot more. Um, I, I learned a lot very, very quickly there. And there was about five chefs in the kitchen, um, very small kitchen. But you're next to eat, each other all the time. You're teaching each other things. Again, like different cultures. Uh, Italian, uh, Portuguese, Hungarian, Dutch, obviously, Italian. Um, so, yeah, the learning curve went up a lot while I was there. Did you get a chance to immerse yourself in the food scene of Amsterdam? And are there any stories uh, of, that you can share? Um, I guess the thing about um, food in Amsterdam is, um, you know, I ate around at a few restaurants. It's I think Dutch food, you have the traditional food like pickled herring and croquettes and, and all those things. Um, but it's a bit like Australia where it takes a lot of influences from from a lot of other places. So really you could go into any restaurant and get you know, French, Spanish, Italian, uh, British. It's, it's, they're really open to those influences. And, of course, Asia and all those places where, where the Dutch are connected to. What brought you back to Australia and, and what did you do when you got back? Uh, well, after working in those restaurants, I spent quite a bit of time in Spain, um, kind of just finding my style a bit more. And then I wanted to, I realized that I, I wanted to continue my career in Australia. 
Uh, so I came back and I um, went back to Sydney and I started working at Nomad in Sydney. Um, and while I was there, I was doing um, the meats and the cheese and the breads. Well, tell us about your role there because uh, at Nomad, uh, they make their own charcuterie and, and bread. And Can you tell us some of the secrets and things you learned there about that? Um, well, I guess I learned pretty much everything I know there. Um, I learned a lot at Nomad and it was also exciting because I'd spent that time in Spain and I got an acquainted with, you know, the cured meats in, in that part of the world. And I was able to bring my, you know, interest back and like learn the skills to do it myself. Um, I guess, I, mean, I, I wouldn't say there's any secrets, but I guess, um, you know, they use really high quality products direct to the farmers from the farmers um you build a connection with the farmers so that you are really understanding the product that you're using and i think that that high quality and that understanding comes through in their charcuterie what does it take to make charcuterie can you take us through the process of of one of your favorite things that you made in that time um a lot of patience you have to (laughs) you can't rush it um, I guess my favorite was the probably like the the salamis, like the the chorizo and the suppressor. Um, it was quite fun being taught the basics of that, um, and then and then adapting that and building on that. So we would start with first like just an all mint sausage. Um, you put the fat through it, you put your seasonings through it, you pipe it into the casing, so usually um, usually uh, beef bungs, and then you leave it to kind of inoculate and then you put it in the curing cabinet and just, um, yeah, once it's lost enough water weight, it's ready to go, but it really is a, you know, you have to follow a very strict recipe for hygiene and weights, but to know, oh, yeah, this is ready, It's it's you have to get the hang of it and use a bit of intuition. Jackie Chalanoa is the executive chef at Nomad. What was it like working with her? Uh, yeah, that was um, excellent working with Jackie. I actually, um, you know, look up to her a lot and she taught me a lot about, um, about cooking and how to run restaurants and, you know, my cooking style and her being Maltese as well. We had that connection and... Um, yeah, working with her was um, was great. Yeah, and I still go to her every now and again when I, I need some help with something. You've been at Hentley Farm for quite a few years now in various roles and built your way up to executive chef. What what lured you there in the first place? Uh, it was actually working at Nomad um, when I was having the connections with the farmers, so like the milk farmers and the pork farmers, um, and, you know, they'd come in and drop off their products and we'd have a chat and I'd be like, hey, I'm having this problem, I don't understand. And they had, like, so much insight, which I think gets overlooked a lot of the time. Um, I mean, they really know what they're doing and if chefs are to connect with the farmers a lot more, I think a greater understanding and a greater product would come out of um, what chefs are producing. And I just really enjoyed that and I just wanted to be in a place where I could do that, you know, pretty much every day. Do you have any stories of producers that you made connections with um, in your time at Nomad that that drove you to to go down that track? Yeah, definitely. Um, I would say the goat farmers at Willowbury. Um, 
again, they were Maltese by chance. We always find each other. Um, so immediately we made a very close bond and they were very nurturing of me and what I was trying to do and learn. And I just thought, oh, wow, what if I could do this, you know, with, with all the producers that I use and just how great that would be. And tell us about Hentley Farm and, and what you're doing there. Uh, well, it's a fine dining restaurant in the Barossa Valley. Um, really trying to emphasize local produce, um, Barossa and, and, and SA as a whole. Um, just moving here, coming from Sydney, it's, I don't think people realize how high of a standard the, the produce is. Um, so just highlighting that, showing people, you know, really high quality vegetables that you can't get at the supermarket and also incorporating and supporting the local community as well. Who are some of the producers you're working with now? Um, well, I'm quite close with the oyster producers down in Port Lincoln, Gazanda Oysters. Um, I've taken the chefs down there. We stayed for several days, seeing how they do everything. Um, so that's great. And coming back and having an oyster and looking at it and being able to be like, oh, I understand what makes this such a good oyster is great. Um, there's also local veg producers, there's farmers, pork farmers, hoggett farmers. Um, Michael Wallstadt, the dairyman, he's, um, he's great. He does mushrooms, dairy, pork. Um, yeah, there's also bakers we use, just, just locals that are producing such a high-quality product. What is it about the Barossa that attracts such high-quality artisans and, and also produce? Um, I think... I think it because people do take so much pride in what they're doing and they never let it get too big because um, they really want to focus on doing it correctly. I think that just means that the standard is just consistent and people appreciate that. You mentioned that you spent a bit of time in Spain working on uh, your style of cooking. And t tell us about what that is. What, what, what's your style of cuisine? Um, I guess it's continuously grown since then. Um, I guess the basis of it that I learned in Spain, um, mainly just by, by eating with locals, was that sense of community and, in a way, simplicity um, and, again, a high-quality product and just enjoying that how it is. And then Nomad obviously shaped the flavours I like to use and being here at Hentley Farm, I learnt you know, how to simplify that and make make the produce really shine. So I guess my style is, um, you know, not too overcomplicated, um, dominant flavours just shining through. Take us through one of your dishes on the menu at the moment that sort of exemplifies that connection with local producers and, and the way that you're cooking right now. Um, so, a uh, dish I have on at the moment is um, oyster mushrooms. So, Michael at Dairyman grows them. He started off with um, cows and pork. Um, and as a hobby, he started growing oyster mushrooms, and they're exceptional. So, I use them. Um, and next to that, I have a parmesan custard. And then on top of that, I have um, hazelnuts and uh, forage flowers. So another big thing we do is a lot of foraging, and um, around here there's a there's a lot to forage, especially during spring. So we try to utilize that, and you know it's exciting for people to 
drive here and be like, oh, wow, I saw these flowers on the way down and now it's on that plate. What sort of things uh, are you foraging um, at the moment? Uh, at the moment, all flowers. Um, it's great. We have sour sobs, we have wood sorrel, uh, rocket flowers, brassica, canola, rosemary flowers, as well as broad beans are starting to come through and fennel will be back soon. How important are your kitchen team at Hentley Farm? I mean, the team is what what makes it. Um, you know, I have a very strong, I really care about what I do and they all do as well and we all support each other and, you know, we look after ourselves and we look after each other and then we really encourage each other to to do our best and be respectful to the, the produce that we have and I think that shines through. What's some of the challenges and highlights of leading a team as opposed to being a part of a team? How, how do you get the best out of your staff? Um, well, there's definitely been challenges during COVID. Um, I guess with COVID, I kind of took that as an opportunity to reassess what we we're doing. Um, we went from six services to four services. Uh, so everyone's working a much more sustainable week. Um and I think that just gives everyone the chance to really look after themselves, their mental health, um, and just focus a lot on what they're doing um, and what they're putting up and being proud of that. And I guess um, the biggest highlight is encouraging the team and supporting them and watching them, you know, put up something that they're really proud of and taking to that to the table. With those operational changes to the structure of what you do, has that changed the productivity and the output and and the energy in the kitchen? Yeah, 100%. I mean, I think um, all chefs know what it's like to work too many hours. Um, and sometimes you get to the end of the week and it's just a bit too much, but you just have to get through it. Whereas we don't really have that anymore. It's more... Um, coming at nine every day, eight by six every day, and you just really focus on what you're doing while you're there. You've had a really challenging couple of years with the, the bushfires and then the pandemic. Um, what sort of impact has it, has it had on you and the way you view your profession? Um, yeah, well, I guess um, I also have taken a step back and, you know, decided to prioritise my own sustainability because, I mean, I want to be doing this for a while and I want to do it sustainably. Um, so I guess, I guess, you know, working that more sustainable work week has really helped me focus and be more creative and go and do things. You know, now I have time to go foraging and be relaxed while I'm doing it and being more inspired and speaking to locals and just, just being more creative. It's helped with a lot. What are the benefits of cooking in a restaurant attached to a winery? Um, I mean, obviously a lot of, a lot of wine. Um, <laughs> I, w I would say before I came here, you know, I, I liked wine, but I didn't really understand it. Um, whereas here I can, you know, walk down to the winery, ask any question I want. Um, I really understand the process of how it's made now. The vineyard is right there. You see the vineyard workers working the grapes that you're then going to drink about a year later. So well, some of them a year later. Um, yeah, I guess just the understanding first and foremost of what we're doing and that in turn has helped me with pairings. Does that influence the sort of food that you offer given the wines that are produced there and that sort of pairing food with wine? 
Yeah, it does. I um I do like to try personally. I like to try and start with the food, um, just because that is where I have a bit more understanding. And then what I'll do is I'll go to the winemakers and I'll speak with them and I'll say, hey, like from your point of view, because they have like all the sciencey ideas. Um, <laughs> How would this work? And then they give me suggestions and then we'll get go from there. Um, but yeah, it's definitely it's definitely exciting being able to to see a wine being produced and then think, oh, what can I do with that? What's a typical day like for you now that the you've implemented these different changes? Um get up. Um, you know, we're just working days, so morning starts. Um you just go for a bit of a bit of a forage. Um, in winter, it's a bit cold, but it's beautifully sh- spring at the moment. Um, pick what we need to pick. I find that very relaxing as well, and it kind of gives you a good headspace for the day. Um, come in, we'll sort out the produce we have, and then we'll go into prep. Um, and then we have our break. We make sure we all eat something together. Then we have our brief, so we're all just in the same headspace for service, and then we get into service. What do you love about cooking? Um, I guess I enjoy how emotive of an experience it is. Um, I find it very inspiring that you can eat something and feel so deeply about that and enjoy it and enjoy it with other people. What's it like um, having people come back into the restaurant now after all sorts of lockdowns and moving forward? Uh, does it feel different uh, cooking for people again? Yeah, yeah, it does, especially since we took such a big break. Um, I think what's really, really nice for me is that we have a really big support of um, South Australians. I mean, we are a bit of a de- destination, so we can tend to get uh, interstate holiday makers, which is great. It's fantastic. Um, but that's not the reality right now with borders closed. Um, so to see so many South Australians supporting us is, is really nice. What's next for you? Um, I'm not sure what's next. I'm kind of just focusing on on what we're doing now. I really want to, um, you know, keep keep developing both the restaurant and the team and myself and just um, see where that takes us. It's the start of spring now. As you mentioned, it's warming up. How important is seasonality in, in what you do? Um, I mean, here it's it's a huge part. Um, being in the country, you really experience the seasons. I know sometimes in a city you don't see the colours change, you don't see the grass get greener, you don't see the flowers bloom, whereas here it's there every day. So that can be be a great inspiration um but also obviously with the producers it's all seasonal um if they don't have something because it's not in season or you know the animals aren't ready it is what it is and we work around that so yeah seasons are, have a big impact on what we do you've worked in the uk and sydney but what is it that you love about uh, living and working in south australia uh i would say that sense of community that is really emphasized here it makes everything very rewarding um yeah and also the you know i think it's it's beautiful here it's beautiful to get up and see the vines every day and you know the produce that's available 
Well, uh, Claire, we've loved hearing your story today on Deep in the Weeds. Um, please keep in touch. Good luck with everything. And uh, we'll talk again soon. Thank you. This is the Deep in the Weeds podcast. I'm Anthony Huckstep. Stay tuned as we take a deep dive into the lives of the incredible people who ply their trade in the food and hospitality sector. Special thanks to executive producer Rob Locke for making this all happen. Follow us on Instagram at Deep in the Weeds Podcast or email us at podcast at deepintheweeds.com.au. Stay safe and be well.